Okay, so uh, last week we finished uh, with Jesus being baptized. Uh, If you remember, he came up from the water, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and the Father said to him, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, this is important for where we're going this evening, because these words are a vine uh, to show us who Jesus is and what his role is. Now we'll go back again. Um, There we go. So first up, he's the kingdom shattering son of God, the sovereign, powerful son of God in Psalm 2. But he's also the meek and humble, sacrificial, suffering servant of Isaiah 42. God says, this is my beloved son who has all authority on heaven and on earth. And I'm well pleased with him because he's only going to use that power to love and to serve others and not himself. So Jesus is both, uh, which is very important to remember for what's about to happen in this scene. Uh, but then, then, straight after the Spirit descends on Jesus, the first thing we hear is, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So after being baptized, the first order of business for the Spirit is to carry Jesus on a long, long walk by himself into the wilderness. Then we read one of the most obvious statements in the Bible, where it says, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So for 40 days in the scorching heat, 40 nights in the shocking cold, Jesus was fasting in the wilderness, which already sounds kind of superhuman, uh, but two things to note, Jewish fasts, they weren't absolute, so Jesus would have still been drinking water. And if he wasn't drinking water, of course, in the wilderness, someone could have only survived, you know, three, four days, anything more than that would have been miraculous. But history and science have actually shown that as long as someone's drinking water, it is possible, although not advisable, to go up to 40 days without food, without irreversibly damaging our bodies. So while extremely dangerous and harrowing, there's nothing in here so far that's necessarily miraculous that Jesus has done. Uh, But still, he was just about as vulnerable as a person could be. And it was only then, when Jesus was at the end of his 40-day fast, that we read that the tempter approached him. How often we see that in our own lives. It's when we're down, when we're alone, when we're hurting, that there's a little voice that comes to us, tempting us away from God. And the devil, he will try to tempt Jesus with three things in this passage this evening. We're going to see him tempting Uh, Three times, uh, the first is our first section, the temptation to escape suffering from verses 1 to 4. In in the first temptation, the devil starts by saying, if you are the son of God. So what were God's last words in the book? What were the last words we heard God speak? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now Satan appears as he often does to question God's words. He's saying, if you're the son of God, surely you don't need to suffer like this. Surely you can use your power to escape this suffering. He says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It's a temptation that I can't really relate to, turning stones to bread. And it's kind of a curious thing to tempt Jesus with, because there's nothing really sinful about turning stones to bread. Later in the gospel, we're going to read twice that Jesus turns Oh, something to bread. He makes bread appear out of nowhere for thousands of people twice. But Jesus never once performs a miracle to make his own life easier, as tempting as that may have been. 
Uh, my cop here at a joke he'd always say, he'd say, giving up smoking's easy, I've done it hundreds of times. Uh, it's pretty easy to not give in to temptation for a while, but to really understand temptation is to stand in the face of it. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis that sums this up really well. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try and fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, he's the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. So if you're one of those people who reads this passage and says, nah, he probably doesn't get what I'm going through, he was God, he must have superpowers to resist temptation like I've never had, then I think C.S. Lewis can be pretty helpful for us that actually Jesus understands temptation better than any of us. Because in the face of all this temptation to finally eat Jesus, he doesn't give up, he doesn't complain, Uh, The closest I've experienced to this lately, while still about a million miles from it, uh, it was a couple of weekends ago, we were having Chinese New Year lunch with Serena's family. Serena's auntie booked us two tables for lunch at Yamcha, obviously the busiest time of year. As you can imagine, it was hectic. People were everywhere. Uh, We soon realized the aircon was broken. We were all sitting, sweating, uh, waiting for (laughs) a waiter to walk past so we could ask them, please, if we can get some cold water. Uh, Everyone at the table was sweating, overwhelmed. We just kept getting more plates of chicken feet put in front of us. Um, And what did we do? We complained. We all started grumbling about the heat, about the bad service. And of course, it wasn't a big deal. It just happened to be the busiest day of the year. But we were so quick to grumble, even though it was only about half an hour in the heat without food and water. It was absolutely nothing compared to what Jesus went through, but still... We were quick to grumble. But instead of grumbling and doubting, Jesus replies, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he pushes back saying, yeah, food, it's necessary for life, but we're not just physical beings. We need the word of God to truly live. But seeing where this quote is from is even more important. It's actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's a passage about Israel being punished with 40 years in the wilderness for not trusting in God's words. So Jesus is not just coincidentally uh, referencing this passage, he's actually living it. Jesus is following in the footsteps of Israel, walking through the wilderness for 40 days, not years. Uh, But where Israel was grumbling and doubting that God would provide Jesus, he doesn't give in to that temptation. But I actually think it's one level even deeper than that, uh, because where else in the Bible have we seen a man who's representing humanity, who's being tempted by Satan, who's questioning uh, God's word and twisting it to try and tempt them? Well, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But whereas Adam and Eve, they were in a garden of abundance, uh, we've seen Israel and Jesus, they were in the wilderness, almost an image of anti-creation. Whereas Adam had everything he could possibly need before him, Jesus, he was malnourished, 
he was alone. But still, in both passages, Satan, he emerges to question what God has said. It seems pretty clear from this passage that Jesus, he's the new Adam, he's the new Israel, he's standing where they stood, but not falling at the point of temptation. Because though Jesus was pushed to his extreme, he trusted that God would provide for him. He lived every word that came from the mouth of God. So to our second point, the second temptation, Satan tempting Jesus to escape weakness in verses 5 to 7. So it's round two, the devil notices that the first mode of attack isn't working, so he changes tactics. He tries something a bit different. From verse 5 it says, The devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, it's not something I've really been tempted to do, to jump off a a temple and get angels to save me. Uh, But it's like the devil saying, okay, fine, Uh, you're living by the word of God, that's cool, you love the Bible. Well, here's a verse that I like, how about you give it a try? He's quoting from Psalm 91, one of the most comforting passages in the Bible. It's a psalm full of promises of God's protection. But again, Satan, he's taking God's word, he's twisting it, He's somehow applying God's promises of protection in a destructive way. And again, he starts with, if you are the son of God, he's still banging that drum. If you're the powerful Psalm 2 son of God, show us that power. Because they aren't just having a chat anywhere, they're standing on the highest point of the temple. Now here's a picture of the temple. from where scholars assume they probably were, just one more, Mitch, thanks. Yeah, that corner there. Uh, would have been a 43 meter drop to the street below. Now, if you walk outside and look up, the St. Paul's spire is 46 meters above ground, so it's pretty close. <laughs> Tom's giving me a thumbs up that they're doing that, that's great. Um, so if you're finding it hard to picture, just walk outside and picture Jesus and Satan on the spire out there looking down. And if Jesus had jumped from there and was rescued by a horde of angels, it obviously would have been an absolute miracle. And all the Jewish and religious leaders, it was a temple, they would have been there to see and recognize that Jesus was the Christ. Which I think is pretty surprising. Ironically, it sounds like Satan, he actually would have been pleased if the religious leaders had known that Jesus was the Christ because they would have been trusting in him for the wrong reasons, because of his power, because he was the son of God, not because he was the suffering servant. And we can only assume that Satan knew that if that had happened, Jesus wouldn't have actually been able to go to fulfill his mission, to go to the cross. Uh, But I think as well, these verses, they should be pretty confronting for us, uh, because again, we see that Satan actually knows God's word really well. Satan can quote scripture with the best of them. Satan would have been up to date in our Bible reading plan. He believes in God and in Jesus, and seemingly, he actually understands the gospel. But at every point, he dismantles it, he fractures it, he discredits it, and he tries to twist it to destroy us. It's no coincidence that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' two great enemies are the Jewish religious leaders and Satan, They both know the words of the Bible back to front, but they don't know and love God. 
It hasn't changed their hearts to repentance, to life, or to love. Which I think should give us some pause if we kind of naturally assume that the main index for Christian maturity is the knowledge of the Bible. Of course, it's vital, but if someone uses Scripture to condemn more than to to encourage, to self-justify more than to glorify Christ, to use God's Word to seek power in this world instead of following Christ into sacrificial love for the sake of others, then we need to stop and ask God for his help to soften our hearts because Satan can do every bit of that as well as we could. Which is why Jesus could never jump. He could never reveal his true nature to the world in this miraculous David Blaine-like show of power. Again, it would have been a miracle to serve himself, to show the most important people how powerful he was to wow them with his power, to gain a following from those who would ultimately reject him. So Jesus again replies from an answer from God's word. Jesus tells him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, it's a passage from Deuteronomy. Jesus again is plainly saying, I'm walking the path that Israel walked, but where they failed, I'm entrusting myself to my father. God has already spoken and said, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. So Jesus doesn't need to jump off a tall building, get angels to rescue him to test if he's really the son of God. And now this all, again, might seem a bit far from our experience, but when you hear God's word telling you that you're an adopted son or daughter of God, and he loves you with a deep and unbreakable love like a perfect loving father, do you fully and immediately believe that? Isn't there a voice in you sometimes that says, does he really Do you really think that if you're a child of God, you would do that? You would live like that? You'd feel like that? You'd look like that? How could anyone love you, let alone God? And when that voice speaks to you to make you doubt God's promises and his love for you, then recognize that for what it is. And maybe it might help you, just like Jesus, to have a verse ready in your back pocket. Just one example, a verse that's been a blessing to me and so many others uh, Romans 8, 38 to 39, it says, Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that's one worthy of the back pocket. It's one worthy of the pool room. Jesus, he didn't need a physical sign to test if he was the Son of God because God had already spoken. And you don't need a sign to test that you're in Christ, that you're an adopted child of God, that you're forgiven because God has already spoken. Okay, so finally, round three, our final section, Satan's final desperate strategy, escape the cross, verses 8 to 11. From verse 8, we see the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor and he says to Jesus, I will give you all of this if you will fall down and worship me. This is Satan's most desperate and least subtle strategy. He's given up on the whole, if you are the son of God routine, and he's throwing one last desperate ploy. He's saying, I will give you the world if you just worship me. But there are at least a couple of issues with this one. Firstly, the kingdoms of the world aren't Satan's to give. 
which isn't really unusual. Satan loves promising things he can't deliver. But it's actually even worse than that, because if you remember Psalm 2, uh, God has already said that Jesus is his son, and God has promised that his son will inherit the earth. So Satan's actually promising something to Jesus that God has already promised to give him, but Satan was trying to offer him a shortcut. He was saying, how about Psalm 2 without Isaiah 42? How about the benefits of being the Psalm 2 powerful son of God without having to be the Isaiah 42 suffering servant? Satan is offering Jesus the kingdom without the cross. But of course, Jesus, he could never do that. Uh, Because of his great love for us, he knew that we needed him to give up his life for our sake to save us. So Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now again, it's the third time Jesus, he finds his answers in the book of Deuteronomy. These were the lessons that God was trying to teach Israel. uh, But Jesus, he's learned them instead. He didn't budge from wholehearted devotion and worship of his heavenly father, or from his mission to know temptation for our sake, to go to the cross for our sake. Uh, there's a passage in Hebrews 2 that actually helps us, I think, enormously in understanding uh, this whole scene and why Jesus did this, why this temptation scene actually happened. Uh, it says this. Uh, give me three seconds. It says this. Jesus had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Well, since he has suffered when he was tempted, he's also to help, able to help those who are tempted. But that's why Jesus went through this whole harrowing temptation scene so that he could know the absolute depths of our suffering and our temptation so that he can help us. Jesus, he's our merciful and faithful high priest, no matter what. So in some profound and mysterious way, Jesus, he can actually understand every part of our experience of temptation as a sinful humanity whilst never giving in to sin himself. For us, it almost seems like temptation and sin are synonymous. They seem like the same experience because temptation so often leads to sin. But as we've already seen, Jesus, he never actually gave in to temptation, which means that he actually understands it better than any of us. It wasn't until the cup of temptation was full that the angels could actually attend to him so that Jesus could understand every depth of our experience and clear the path for us to draw near to God. What does that even mean that Jesus helps us when we attempted, uh, just in wrapping up really quickly, I've got three ideas of what I think it might mean for us today, how this passage is speaking to us today about how Jesus helps us in temptation. The first one is recognize. I think one of the reasons that Jesus passed this story down to his disciples and down to us is because he wanted us to be able to recognize the voice and the influence of Satan in the rest of the gospel. Because everything that Satan says is then echoed throughout human voices in the rest of the gospel, through the voices of the religious leaders or Jesus' followers or the people in the towns. Uh, Three very quick examples. Uh, The first one, when Satan tells Jesus, if you're the son of God, tell his stones to become bread, Jesus' disciples doubt in Jesus' power, asking, 
Where on earth could anyone get enough bread in this desolate place to feed this crowd? While Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for angels to catch you, the Pharisees and Sadducees also try and test Jesus to get him to show off a sign from heaven, but he rebukes them just like he rebukes Satan. And finally, and most clearly of all, Satan says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. If you will worship me, I'll give you the kingdom without the cross. And after Jesus explains to one of his disciples, Peter, how he has to go to the cross, Peter says, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, go away, get behind me, Satan. He says the same thing in both scenes. And I think that's why we're introduced to Satan here at the start of the gospel, so we can recognize his voice throughout the rest of the gospel and in our lives. All the ways he tries to undermine God's word, undo the power of the gospel, Jesus, he actually wants us to recognize that for what it is. Our second point, uh, stand strong. Of course, Jesus, he had a very unique mission. Uh, He was facing more than we will ever face. But I think as we're living in Christ, he's given us the power to stand against temptation by the power of his spirit. So this passage is in some ways saying to us, God will provide for you and he will fulfill his promises even if every part of your life looks like that's not the case. Don't doubt God's goodness to you. Don't try and take shortcuts to avoid suffering to gain the world. It's one of the great ironies of this passage that everything that Satan promises to Jesus, God has already actually promised to Jesus. Bread, angels attending to him, kingdoms inheriting the world. God, he will give all of these things to Jesus, but not yet. It was a part of Jesus' mission that he had to suffer while he was tempted so that he could become our merciful and faithful high priest. But that never meant that God wasn't faithful to any of his promises. So even if you can't see the fulfillment of God's promises in your life, don't give in to the temptation, take shortcuts or to stray from being faithful to God because God is a loving father and he's always faithful to every promise he makes, even if his blessings aren't coming according to our schedule. Finally, uh, finally, finally, our final point, uh, learning from the wilderness. Again, the temptation, it was a unique experience and mission for Jesus where he succeeded where Israel failed. Uh, But I think it can still be kind of a template for our experience that we often have as Christians, that experience of a season of wilderness in our lives as Christians. Whether that's a depression that's never been in our lives before or a season where work is particularly hard or a season where we're feeling especially isolated from other people, Whatever that is, it's in those places that Satan loves to work because he knows we're at our most vulnerable. But it's also in those seasons that God can be growing us the most to love and serve him and his people at a later point in our lives. By growing us to love in a way that actually never would have been able otherwise. Uh, For me, this was when I was studying, uh, when I was 17, 18 years old, I was studying at QUT, Creative Writing, Uh, I was in a season of particularly bad isolation. I was feeling very distant from others. I think I was quite socially anxious, but I didn't really have categories for it. Um, I was still grieving the loss of my mother, but again, I didn't really know how to navigate that as a 17-year-old guy. 
And I remember just often praying to God, asking, why, why am I so alone and hurting? What good is this ever going to do for anyone? Uh, and while I'm a big believer in us never being able to fully understand any of God's reasons for allowing suffering in our lives, at the same time, I can look back and see, actually, if I didn't have that season of wilderness, I wouldn't have half the resources of patience or empathy or thoughtfulness with other people that God was actually growing in me in that season. As pointless as it seemed at the time, uh, God was actually doing something, preparing something in me in that season. And when God has you in those places, he might be preparing you to love someone in a, in a depth, in a way you never would have been able to otherwise. Um, so recognize, stay strong, and learn from the wilderness. Three ways that Jesus helps us from this passage, three ways that he helps us trust in God's promises, no matter what's happening in our lives. So I'm just going to pray those things for all of us now. Just join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his suffering for our sake, in his life and in his death. Help us to lean on him as our merciful and faithful high priest. Lord, help us to trust in every promise you've made for our lives. Please lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Please help us to trust where your word speaks into our lives, that you are our loving Father and you have our back. Give us the strength to say no to temptation and all these things and whatever is on people's hearts tonight, we do pray and lift up to you for Christ's sake, Lord. Amen.